You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. How do psychological and physical factors modulate how patients with diabetes eat? Joining us to discuss the benefits of approaching patients from a behavioral and psychological perspective is assistant professor and facilitator of the Certificate of Graduate Study for Eating Disorders and Obesity at Northern Illinois University, Dr. Amy Ozier. Dr. Ozier, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Glad to be here. What are some of the basic psychological and physical factors that we're going to be talking about that can be modulated? You know, we take a look at the very basic um, variable that has to do with the physical reasons for eating. It, it would be hunger. Um, but the problem with our society today is that individuals aren't able to recognize hunger, um, to eat intuitively. We have a, uh, an obesity epidemic. We are surrounded by availability of food, fast food. Um, we have a wonderful neurochemical cascade and um, of things like ap- appetite control hormones like leptin and ghrelin, and if we don't adhere to our hunger on a normal basis with regular eating, then that cascade is really altered. Um, taking a look at how that can be altered for individuals who have a large amount of stress in their lives. Uh, perhaps they engage in maladaptive coping. Um, they deal with emotions um, in a maladaptive way. They can turn to eating to cope. Um, also significant to my particular research is um, appraisal. And appraising situations for one person may be very simple. Um, It may not be stressful, but for another person in the same situation, their appraisal can be very um, negative and have a negative impact on the outcome. Some people turn to eating as a way to cope. Um, Also, then you compound it with psychological disorders such as depression, Uh, For some people, they have guilt, shame for things in their lives. So these negative emotional states can be an antecedent that actually can cause overeating. Um, It's a type of tension release, type of coping. Now, before I get into the EADS questionnaire that you authored, you mentioned in the beginning that people have a hard time recognizing hunger. I mean, I my first thought was, gee, I I never have any problem realizing when I'm hungry. I'm not sure if that's what you meant. Uh, When I did my weight management programs, usually about half the class, we would talk about eating intuitively and what hunger was, and they would say, I don't know anymore, because either they would graze throughout the day, Mm -hmm. some would be binge eaters, and they had gotten out of touch with those wonderful Um, intuitive signals of the stomach and the brain. And so we had to talk about the signs of hunger. What is it? And we had to practice it again. And for individuals who um, eat to cope, 
more than likely they're overeating, and so they've gotten away from eating intuitively, eating for hunger reasons. Let's talk about the uh, the EADS questionnaire, which stands for Eating and Appraisal Due to Emotions and Stress. I, I think this is such an important issue, and this questionnaire may have applicability to many of our listeners in their clinical practice. Well, um, this questionnaire was created uh, to assess how individuals cope with and appraise stress stress and emotion related to um, food. And I, you know, to create an assessment tool, you always have to have a a good theory, a good foundation. And so uh, Lazarus and Folkman, who were psychologists, uh, had this wonderful theory um, called the Transactional Model of Stress and Coping. And it was basically a framework that was able to assess the processes related to coping and going back to one person may be able to cope better than the other because of their perception of the situation. So uh, anyway, I I was looking and looking in the literature because I saw a need um, as a dietitian to address emotion and stress-related eating somehow. Um, but there was no questionnaire that existed based on this transactional model of stress and coping. And it was my um, practical experience with my patients and my clients as a dietitian. You know, I would address the calorie in, calorie out, balance equation. We'd talk a little bit about physical activity, but something was missing. Um, when I just addressed those components, those patients and clients kept coming back And this EADS questionnaire helps us to measure those variables. What it measures is emotion and stress-related eating. Uh, It measures appraisal of ability and resources to cope, which is basically um, related to one's perception um, in relation to his personal well-being of resources, including skills to cope with stress and emotions. Um, And then it also measures appraisal of outside stressors and influences, um, which is how one copes with external stressors, uh, such as other individuals. Well, I love the fact that, you know, this is a missing piece of the dietary puzzle. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with Dr. Amy Osier. We are discussing the benefits of approaching patients from a behavioral and psychological position as it relates to their food intake. Well, Amy, how long does it take to take this questionnaire, and how can healthcare professionals use this in their practice? This questionnaire takes about 10 to 15 minutes to complete, and um, it's my call to action to healthcare professionals who are dealing with those who are overweight or obese in their assessment phases to assess for emotion and stress-related eating. Um, They can use this questionnaire. Um, Basically, you know, typically patients, clients, they get documents. They've got to fill out um, assessment forms, and this is one that can be included. And so basically um, the individual will complete the questionnaire, and then there's cumulative scoring for each of the variables, which there's three of them. And so then after um, they take the questionnaire, then the healthcare professional uh, can use those results to guide treatment. Um, just as dietitians will take 24-hour food recalls or do three-day food diaries, this is kind of like a food diary that assesses emotions and appraisal. And if those numbers come back low, 
then that means that they're compromised and more than likely their eating, their overeating is a result of stress and emotion and they need to figure out how to cope with that. And health professionals can intervene with stress management techniques. They may need to refer to appropriate healthcare professionals such as counselors, psychologists. How can they get this questionnaire? Is it free? Merely somebody has to email me. <laughs> That's what they have to do to get the questionnaire. I do have them fill out a contract saying that they will share uh, if they collect data on this, they'll share that. But I do. This is a free tool, and I'm hoping that more healthcare professionals will use it. Well, why don't you say your email for us? Sure. It is A-O-Z-I-E-R at N-I-U dot E-D-U. How do you assess a patient who is very hyperglycemic or has a high A1C, you know, in terms of overeating and as, as a contributing factor? We are seeing that more and more in the research that they may present with these biochemical indices, these somewhat external factors that actually represent some internal factors related to psychological well-being. So they may present with a high hemoglobin A1C, uh, blood glucose is not modulated, but as an example, let's say a dietitian has them um, record a food and emotion diary, and what they see is that they're overeating in times of stress. Maybe they're sad. Maybe they're going through a divorce. Maybe um, there's just some really hard times in their lives, and they're seeing, if you do a comparison of blood glucose logs and a comparison of the food emotion diary, emotions and stressors are all over the place. And so, yes, we have to address hemoglobin A1C, perhaps insulin, exogenous insulin, whatever it may be, but we've also got to address the core to what's raising those levels. And so what do you do? Well, stress management techniques, uh, possibly referring to a clinical psychologist, uh, something to help with how the person is coping with their emotions and stress. This tool obviously helps bridge a gap if there's no clinical psychologist around, but let me just ask you this. In your experience, when someone scores very abnormal on your questionnaire, what, what is the best form of therapy for those folks? I mean, what, where do you send them? And give, give us a priority list. Um, ideally, they would be sent to a clinical psychologist or somebody in mental health that is equipped to help them address um, coping related to emotion and stress. They would also need to see a dietitian, preferably one who is well-versed in um, not necessarily eating disorders, but disordered eating behavior. Um, and ideally, the, the mental health professional and the dietitian would work together. And, of course, overseeing all of this would be the MD. Um, and there would be discussions about the progress being made related to coping strategies and and what other types of avenues there are for this patient besides eating um, as a maladaptive way of coping. Where is the role of the family members in this whole process? You know, depending upon the client, upon uh, the patient, over and over again, not only in my um, practical experiences, but also through the research support is like a number one predictor for behavior change. And so if family can be supportive, if they can be included on appointments or counseling sessions, that is an enormous tool to have in helping someone regulate their blood glucose. 
um, but ultimately helping them to cope in healthy ways. I would like to thank our guest, Assistant Professor and Facilitator of the Certificate of Graduate Study for Eating Disorders and Obesity at Northern Illinois University, Dr. Amy Ozier. Dr. Ozier, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, To help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan, who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes, whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.